because I'll probably forget at the end, like normal, I get done with, uh, and I usually have, like at the end, I'm supposed to give a couple announcements, I always forget, so I'm going to say it now, and I might say it later, but I'll probably forget. Um, in, in Desire to Honor Moms, we have a, a board out there so that all of you can take pictures with your family, uh, maybe even with, uh, you know, maybe some people you're mentoring. Some of you may not be moms, but you mom others. You know, kind of Titus 2, you disciple others, and you take that role of shepherding and caring for others, or you just have sweet people that you mentor. I just encourage you within the church family to cultivate those relationships, but especially for families. Hopefully, it's a blessing for you. I think we've made cookies for you. I don't know where those are at, but um, if you want to uh, get one of those, we just a little gift to say thank you for that. I want to take you just, just as a way to remind you of what good motherhood looks like to 2 Timothy 1 really quickly, and then we'll get back to Philippians, so don't get too worried, those of you who really are uh, concerned about organization and finishing, because we're almost done with Philippians. Okay, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see the Apostle Paul talking about his, his protege, Timothy, but he did not at least introduce the Lord to Timothy. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. So we have three generations of faith, right? We have Lois to Eunice to Timothy. So you look at the, the ministry of motherhood for Timothy, it started with his grandmother. Then go to chapter 3 and look at verse 14, at the end of chapter uh, 3, verse 14. He says, um, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Well, who was it that taught him from the Scriptures? How from, a ch from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writing writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's the picture then you have. Lois sharing with Eunice the Scriptures that are able to make her wise to salvation, and then Lois with Eunice sharing with Timothy as a young child. And so you don't just have motherhood, you have grandmotherhood. And, and Paul is saying these were instrumental in God bringing you to saving faith. I think just a, if you want to know how to be a good mom, give your children the word which is able to give them life. And I think um, just a little bit of an apology, as in defense for what I'm doing this morning by taking you back to Philippians and not talking about motherhood. I think often in a desire to honor mothers, we do something that actually is relatively out of line with Scripture, as we talk all about motherhood instead of actually just feeding people with God's Word. If the measure of good mothering is to give people the living Word, then the measure of good leadership is giving people the living Word. And so that's, that's my goal this morning, is just to give you the Bible, and we're going through Philippians, and we're going to talk about how to honor God. So here's a really good example for you mothers. Honor God in how you worship him through giving. Because that's the text we're in this morning in Philippians chapter 4. So if you turn there with me, I'm so thankful for my mom. Many of you know that she has been, um, she lost her mind about six or seven years ago. And she's been really on her deathbed for the last seven years. Um, but I, I know for our home, my mom's discipline and devotion to the Lord were massively impactful in shaping our whole home to be a place of grace. Some of you ladies, um, mothers, you have that same type of impact. You are training your children, not merely through words, but through example. You are showing the sweet, forgiving spirit, the grace, the faithfulness, the discipline that honors the Lord. So thank you for discipling your children for the sake of Christ. Thank you for being part of our church. Thank you for bringing your family here today. These things honor the Lord. So I think it's good often. Can I just, one more kind of anecdotal point here. Our culture really has a hard time with a family. I think the institution of the home is quickly being dishonored and disorganized, and the numbers of children growing up in fractured homes, single-parent homes, um, within homes with 
gay marriages. Um, it's just the home is getting wrecked in our country. The downstream effect is going to be a society that's fraying at the edges. It's not merely that Christianity is going to be lost. It's that by losing the home, by losing faithful dads and faithful moms, whether or not they're believers, faithful in the sense of like hardworking, teaching their children to be honest, teaching their children how to be men and women who are good people in society, the, the rejection of God's institution of the home will wreck our society. It will just take a little bit to get there. So thank you for being faithful to your families. Men, honor your wives as a mother of your children. Honor your moms. Uh, whether or not you're an adult, they're still your mom, right? Like, you can be 40, and someone still gave birth to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? You have a mom, so um, thank the Lord for your moms. They've given you life, and you, you may not have a great relationship with your mom, and you should do everything within the power the Lord gives you to love your mom and honor her as the one God has given you as your mom. So do that, do that, make today a good day. It's one of the places in our world where Mother's Day, our, our culture kind of gets it right. I mean, all of the way their culture gets it wrong. Mother's Day and Father's Day, it's like, I can get behind those ones. So, all right, Philippians chapter 4. I want to take you, I mentioned giving is, is, it's an important obligation, I think, of the church to teach on worship. And to me, I, I look at giving as an essential part of worship. I always feel a little bit of awkwardness about speaking about giving because it seems self-serving. I think this passage is a corrective for my heart, and I hope it is for you as well. So we look in Philippians 4. If I just kind of get a running start in the text and introduce it to you, in, in verses 10 through 13, he's challenging, or he's thanking them, and he's encouraging them to give, and he says, I, I have the supply of what I need, but, but I'm content because the Lord has given me contentment. So any of you feeling like you need something else in your life, verses 10 through 14 are a reminder that our satisfaction in life is not in the stuff we accumulate. It's not in the size of our bank account. Our contentment in life is a byproduct of our satisfaction with Christ and him strengthening us to be satisfied. That is a significant gift that Christ gives us. So some of you, are longing to have something more, something different, to have a different category of living, to have a, a different state of life. And some of you are underemployed. You're, some of you are financially strapped. Some of you are in a home situation that's unpleasant, and you're longing for something different. Contentment comes by being satisfied with Christ and being strengthened by him to be satisfied in him. Okay, Paul says that's the foundation for understanding where he's coming from. Then he says in verses 14 through 17, but thank you for the gift. Right? Like, I, I have Christ, so I'm content. But your gift satisfied a need that I had. Thank you for the gift. He goes, but I actually care more about your spiritual condition and what your gift means. So thank you for your gift. And, and God be praised for your spiritual health demonstrated in the giving of the gift. Then we come to verses 18 through 20, and he turns our attention not to his need and his contentment in Christ, not to the spiritual value of the giver and his gift, but now to the ultimate goal of giving, which is God himself. So look with me in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And you look at how he concludes this excerpt on giving and discusses it with the Philippian church. You know, he, he's walked through not only his contentment and their giving, now he says the ultimate recipient is God himself. But even as you look at that, look at verse 18. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So the Philippians have given money, they sent it by Epaphroditus to Paul. Because he's not eliminating the human element, he's acknowledging it. You gave me money. 
right? That's what he says. But who is the recipient? Look again at the end of verse 18. This is actually a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that's pleasing to whom? To God. I think this is one of those recognitions we should have as people who give to the Lord all the time. That when we put money in an offering plate, as it pays the bills that pay PG&E to keep the lights on and the air conditioning running in this building, as you give gifts that pay the salaries of the staff here at the church, as you support missionaries and send them money from this church family, that we are not merely giving for the, the needs that, of the people we see and the missionaries we send, we're ultimately giving to whom? We're ultimately giving to God. That God is actually the person that energizes our giving. And that was God's response to the Philippians. He says this is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he says this is something that is, although it's given to a human target, although it's, it's given to the, Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, ultimately the one who's pleased is God. This is, this is language you'd find throughout the Old Testament, often in the context of burnt offerings, which burnt offerings are, are, it may be helpful for us to know culturally, a burnt offering ends up burnt up. So who gets the benefit of a burnt offering? No human is the point. Neither the priest nor the, the giver is supposed to get huge benefit from this offering in the sense of like, needs that they don't walk away with new steaks in their fridge and the meat isn't given to the priest it all goes up in smoke and it's almost as though the picture is that this smoke rises up to the presence of God and it's something that smells sweet to him and I don't think the point is like food like steak I think the point is is all of the benefit is that God gets the cow, the goat. It's all the value in an agricultural society, all the potential increase of using this animal for that, that agricultural need is, is taken away from the giver and is not given to another, the priest. It's given to God. And God's delighted in that. In fact, the same phrase is used in Ephesians 5 about Jesus whose example as a sacrifice is acceptable, is pleasing to God. So this is like the highest level of praise for a sacrifice that's pure and holy to God. I would suggest to you that, that if we're taking those analogies then, sacrifices are inherently sacrificial. So there are, there are things that are not sacrificial that we might give to the Lord. For instance, the spare change in my cup holder in my car. That just gradually accumulates and I don't use it for anything. Except maybe if I'm going through some random toll booth. Like to, to give my children each a quarter is zero sacrifice. In my annual budget, I do not account for quarters. It's just not something that, that does anything to me in general in terms of caring for my home. So, so to give... My little boys, my four-year-old and my seven-year-old accord and be like, hey, can you put this in the offering plate? God is not astounded by the depths of sacrifice that Mark has given. It's not sacrificial. In fact, David lands on this principle in the Old Testament as he is appeasing God's anger and God is, is sending a, a devastating plague through the land and people are dying. He goes to the area where God tells him to, to offer a sacrifice in order to stop the plague. And the man who owns the property says, let me give you the things for your sacrifice. And David's response is, I will not give God anything that costs me nothing. But the sacrifice is to the Lord. I think this is helpful in, in our sense, like for instance, in Acts 17, verse 25, Paul's preaching to the people in Athens, and he says, God is not served by human hands as though he have need of anything. So this morning as the offering plate passes, or perhaps you hopped on your phone online and gave some money, um, thank you for that if you have given money, by the way. Just like the Apostle Paul, we thank you for the gift, but your gift is for whom? God. 
But God is not up in heaven going like, oh, I hope they can fund that building. Like that matching fund, I don't know if we're going to get there. Please give. God does not need your gift. So who is the gift about? It's about how you view your goods that God has granted to you and how you view God's worth of that gift. We give because God is worth worshiping. We give because God is worth giving all of ourselves to. Whether it's our money or our time or our person, God owns all of us by right of just being our creator. By being our father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. God owns us. He owns it all. So this is something we do as recognition of his ownership over us. It's a sacrifice. In other words, it costs us something. And ultimately, ultimately it delights God. So just a couple principles of worship before we move on. If God is the ultimate recipient, then our gift needs to be done with him in mind. It's, it's, I'm always a little bit tentative when we talk about, like, give for this program, this person, or this building, because I don't ever want you to forget that we give to God to worship him. And so Paul reminds the Philippians, hey, you didn't just give to me. Your gift to me is actually about pleasing God. So let's not ever forget that while God uses your money to keep the lights on and hopefully the building cool in the summer, now ultimately, this is about you and God. Do you want to please God with your money? I think this is one of the reasons we relatively, well, we, we try, at least relatively speaking, to keep your giving private, right? Like, we do not have our deacons going through the giving rolls and being like, oh, the Joneses. I know how much he makes. This is like 2%. Which one of you deacons wants to go meet with the Joneses? Because if we did that, then we're going to draw your attention to give for the praise of men or the guilt we would give you for not giving enough. And in fact, the Bible calls us to not let, let others know what we're giving because the seductiveness of giving for the praise of men. Right? Do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. It, it's it's not merely about privacy. It's about the seduction of our own arrogance and pride. We should never do our, our worship so that others look at us. We should do our worship so others look at him. Like, that's the principles of worship. So, second, look at verse 19 with me. God receives us as an offering. He's pleased. I just, again, just an aside, it's incredible to me that the eternal God is pleased by a few dollars. Right? Like, you can leverage something you can't take with you. You can leverage something that you buy candy bars with or go to a restaurant with or pay for gas in your gas tank to worship the eternal God, and he's truly pleased. Verse 19 then says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I think this is the heart of the issue of worship, is I think the Apostle Paul is pressing on them to, to keep on giving and to delight in giving, and if you back up, 2 Corinthians describes the Philippians. Here's, here's his description of the Philippians and the whole area that the Philippians are in, which is called Macedonia. Maybe you think of Macedonia like Kern County. You know, so like we send a gift and he's like, hey, we know what it's like in Kern County. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Did you catch the description? They have severe affliction. They have an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. And then they give generously. Like Those three descriptions are really interesting, aren't they? Severe affliction, abundance of joy, and then this extreme poverty. 
and they gave. That's, I mean, I think it's encouraging in so many levels. They have some affliction going on that's, that's intense. They have extreme poverty, and they have joy. What's one of the words repeated in Philippians again and again? Like rejoice in the Lord, have joy. And he describes that place in Macedonia, that whole area, as having an abundance of joy and generosity despite their poverty. I think some of us think we don't have enough sometimes. I think verse 19 in Philippians 4 is telling us why giving is such a a tribute to God. He says, my God will supply every need of yours. So let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe God will supply every need of yours? I think this is the grind a lot of times in American stinginess with God. It's like, I need the money that I have because I've obligated myself with car payments and house payments and utilities and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, there's not a lot of leftover stuff at the end of the month. And this is things I need. I mean, I really do consider air conditioning in Bakersfield kind of a need. So, so look at how he describes this. He's like, you've given something that God finds pleasing And in light of this, God is going to supply which needs? He says, all of your needs. So my question again to you is, do you believe that if you give God significant portions so that you could call it a sacrifice, do you believe that he is going to supply your needs? So I want to ask you a couple questions because, like, one of my thoughts is like, okay, is, is this thought consistent with the rest of Scripture? Do I truly believe that the whole of Scripture actually agrees at this point, or am I like yanking this out of context and making it say something it's not saying here? Because if I am going to put myself out on a limb with my giving, I better make sure that limb is solid. Like, does God suggest to me elsewhere in Scripture that he actually promises to supply needs if I give him sacrificially? Or will I be hurt by giving? Will my family be destitute because of my giving? So I'm going to take you through several passages that I think actually strengthen this thought here. For instance, Psalm 37. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. That's Psalm 37, 25. Psalm 35, 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Just a thought that God delights in my welfare is calming to my heart. Or perhaps a super well-known phrase in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Okay, NIV translates it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Just think about that first phrase. If the Lord is my shepherd... I lack nothing, and he leads me to green pastures and still waters. The Lord is good to his sheep. Acts 20.35. Scripture says, In all these things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So there's a blessing in giving. Matthew 6, 31, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. Well, what things? He says, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? So he's talking about food, eat, right? What shall we wear? Clothing. What shall we drink? This water to survive? He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. Your Father in heaven knows that you need them, so seek first. The kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll add all these things. So what things? The, the food, the clothing, the, the drink. God takes care of these things is what Matthew 6.31 says. If we do what? Seek first his righteousness. Perhaps our fear of giving is that we know we're not seeking first his kingdom. We, we know we are not actually the one who's righteous, whose children are never begging for bread in Psalm 37. But I think that's, that's where the faith of giving comes in. 
Let me finally take you to 2 Corinthians 9. This is a giving text, and he says, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That'd be another reason we probably shouldn't send a deacon to your house saying, Hey, you haven't been given enough. We don't want to twist your arm to give because giving is an act of worship about which you delight in God and give. It should not be the sense in which you have someone knocking your door saying, hey, you haven't, you haven't paid this month's rent. It shouldn't be like that at all when it comes to giving to the Lord. Not under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So, so, I mean, there's a thought going on here that the Lord gives, and, and it seems like he's describing two things, right? Seed and bread. What do you do with seed? You give it to the dirt. Because that's it's kind of the image there, isn't it? God gives me something to give away. And the yield is a harvest of righteousness. But in there, he also says, and he gives food. So if, if you're holding back because you think God can't supply, when you read the Old Testament and God says, test me and I will open up the windows of heaven. Can I just encourage you all, if the reason you're not giving to God sacrificially is because you don't think God can supply, in faith give and test him. Test God. Now, I would suggest to you, seek first the kingdom. We don't, we don't twist God's arm by saying, man, I'm not meeting this month's rent. I'm not paying my bills, so I'm just going to you know, roll the dice and hope God answers. That type of faithless kind of manipulation is not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who loves the Lord, gives cheerfully. God promises to supply. So if he promises to do that, then, then giving becomes not merely a sacrifice, but a demonstration, a proclamation of faith. I believe in my God. He's my supplier. He is my caregiver. He gives safety. He cares for my needs. Because the alternate caregiver is money. The alternate caregiver is me through my money. So which one do you trust? Now before you just simply say, God, think about how we give sometimes. Sometimes we actually think our money is the supplier, the caregiver, the protector. Tell me that you don't think this. You'll get in an accident. You can't afford a new car. Your question is insurance coverage. Right? Like We have our world so built with safety nets of finances and provisions that often we can live faithless towards God. But here's the question in giving. Do you trust God to actually be personally caring for you. That's how we worship. Like, God, I am going to give in such a way that I am asking you to care for me in my sacrifices. This is, again, I would suggest to you one of the reasons a percentage is actually really helpful if we follow the Old Testament pattern. I don't think God is saying, take your paycheck, sign it over to the church, and hope God fixes it. Like a guy that earns 100000 writes a $2,000 check every week in the offering, and he's giving me all his money and then saying, well, you know, God will provide. That's not the scriptural pattern, okay? Believe it or not, and I, I don't want to distract you from the sermon, but the, the widow who gives away her two mites is not a pattern for you to follow. God does not want you to take your two pennies and throw them all at him. That's why throughout the scriptures, there's this percentage. Generally, it's 10% in the Old Testament, although I think the Old Testament law actually increases that for Israel. But that's what Abraham gives. Um, I'm not trying to suggest to you if you give 9%, you should repent. Nor am I saying that if you give 11%, you're an amazing Christian. But I think there's relief for the wealthy person who has a lot of disposable income and not feeling somehow guilty that he has to give away massive amounts more than that percentage. 
And there's also a sense in which if you're a teenager and you make $100 every three months, you can give a significant amount by giving percentage. And there's grace in that, right? Like to know that, like, if you're a kid and you get $5 a week in your allowance, putting in 50 cents is significant as worship. Again, God doesn't need anything from you. So the fact that, that you're a 12-year-old and you only have five bucks and you give God 50 cents because you're going to give him 10% because you think that honors him, there's sacrifice there. There's a significant portion set aside for God. And what a rich thing that God makes giving and sacrifice something poor and wealthy can participate in with joy and wealth, with poverty, with time. Are you sacrificing for God? Okay, so we go to this idea of care. He will supply all your needs. So I want to ask you the question then. How can any Christian be poor if God is giving? Anyone else wonder that? Like, okay, if God says he's going to supply all our needs, what about the Christian who dies in jail like in the Russian gulag of starvation? Did God supply his needs? Or would you like indict him as not being righteous or seeking God's kingdom first? But I think we recognize that these promises are not promises merely to supply the food you need, but to actually supply what you truly need. Let me ask you, did Jesus seek God's kingdom first? Do you think on the cross he could be saying, God, I need air. Supply my needs. Or do you think God would, the Father would have suggested to his son if he were to have said something like that, and he didn't, that what he truly needed in that moment wasn't air. Right? Like the best thing for the son was to die. So I, I think if we know our days are numbered, right, no one, I don't think anyone in this room would think that you'll be alive in 120 years. Uh, maybe somebody like, well, I'm trying. Okay, so let's go 200. No one's going to make it 200 years from now, right? So, so we know at some point you'll need something physically your body can't give you. God is not promising that type of promise. Like the Father is not going to do you harm by giving you stuff for life, he's going to do you good. So even the apostle writing from prison, who's suffered lack, if you go back to verses 10, 11, and 12, is suggesting that God supplying our needs is not a promise to never have some physical lack. It's a promise that God's care and provision for us is as secure as his commitment to do us good is. So that, the Christian who gives generously to God is not promised to have never-ending supply of money. He's promised to have a never-ending supply of God's grace. That grace does not guarantee a full bank account or bread in the pantry. But a God who, if he withholds bread from the pantry or withholds money from the bank account, it's because it's good. It's because God's care and provision have led you to this place where it is good for you to be in need. Therefore, give. So do Christians suffer? Do Christians have lack of stuff sometimes? Do Christians starve to death across this world, across history? Sure. But that is part of God's plan of goodness. So we read Hebrews 11. Almost everyone in Hebrews 11, I should say almost, everyone in Hebrews 11 dies in faith. Never achieving the outcome of their faith, which is heaven, the city of God, the architect and builder is God himself, is what Hebrews 11 says. They all died in faith. The point is not that God doesn't keep his promises. The point is, is that God has appointed for us each a time to die and that we live out our faith in this life. And most of us will not see heaven's glory without passing through the curtain of death. God is going to keep his promises. He is faithful. So let me just reiterate. God is not promising unlimited wealth. He is promising us 
his care and supply as we give. So the question is, would you rather have God's care and God's supply, or would you rather have your money? Would you rather have God leading you to paths where his pastures are green, but your bank account might be weaker? It's a question of trust. Do you, do you want God to have his hand of provision on your life, or do you want your hand of provision? So let me just suggest to you, this is why this is so significant. Do you believe God will supply every need that he says you have, not the needs that you say you have? Do you trust him that he'll supply every need of yours according to his riches? So here's the measure then. How much can God supply? According to the measure of his riches in glory in Christ. So this is, this is an unimaginable amount of power and glory and wealth at his disposal. So if the God who cares for you enough to send his son to die for you withholds something financially from you or in terms of health from you or in terms of like job opportunity from you, it's not because he's too poor. I mean, have you ever had that happen? Someone that you care about has a need and you're like, man, I wish we could help. I remember about probably about 10 years ago, my, my brother-in-law was really financially just hurting. And I just didn't have the ability to help him. And it was just sad for me. It's like, I wish we could help. But we can't. Can you imagine if that was our God? Like, you give him sacrificially in worship, and he's like, oh, you have needs coming. I, I just, I got nothing. Empty pockets. I wish I could help, but I can't. That's never God. He's always able because the measure of his wealth is glory, his glory, and it's in Christ. I suggest to you then that those who are unified with Christ have at their disposal all the wealth and riches of Christ to supply the needs that we have. There is nothing that God cannot do for those who love him that's aligned with his character. So when he doesn't give us what we think we need, I think we've probably poorly calibrated our definition of need. What do you need? Jesus would say in John 6, 35, that I am the bread of life, that he who believes in me, will never hunger. So he supplied all of this in Christ. Then in verse 20, so we have the promise of God's care. Verse 20 then, here's the ultimate accomplishment of our giving. God is glorified. And here's, here's what I think the passage is suggesting for us. Like, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the caregiver. If God is the one who is glorious, when we give and we show that we care more about God and his gospel ministry than we do our own needs, and we trust him to care for our needs, we declare theologically what we say is true to be true. Right? Like We say God is present. We say God is active. We say he's caring. Do you believe that? Do you, I mean, when you say that, do you actually believe that? Where's the proof that you believe what you say? We sing these truths, right? We sing that like every thread of sorrow has its place in the tapestry of grace. And then when sorrow comes, it's like, man, I'm out. This, I can't go to church anymore. They offended me and hurt me. Or our giving just declines when we're financially a little bit tight, even though our income hasn't changed, we've just overspent. What are we saying theologically when we trust our money to care for us and not God? Or to reverse it. When we are willing to give sacrificially because we trust God to care for us, we are declaring 
at risk to our own benefit that God cares, that he moves, that he is that he is watching over us, that he is delighted in our giving, and he responds to us. We are theologically shouting to the world around us, our God is worth everything I have. Our God is trustworthy to care for me. Our God knows my needs, and he will respond to the needs I have. We are declaring that as we give rather than hold back And think about how much freedom money gives you. You get medical care for freedom, for freedom, for money. You can get medical care. You can get um, education. You get safety from others. You get prestige. I mean, if you have money, you can just have a clean house. Just pay someone to do it for you. What can't you have? I mean, you get air conditioning with money. I've already mentioned that one. What else do you, you get food with money? You can have fun. You can go do things with money. If you have money, what can't you do that this world wants to get done? And frankly, whether or not it's sincere or not, you can get people to love you. You get friends if you have money. So when we give God our money, what are we risking? Power, prestige, freedom to do what we want. Maybe houses, retirement, health, opportunity for education. All of these things are at least at risk in a loss of a dollar or thousands or hundreds or whatever the Lord burdens you to give. So when we say, God, these are things I could do with the the tool that you've put in my hands of money, but I trust you to supply the things over here as needed rather than trusting in money to provide for those needs. We glorify God. And he deserves glory for how long? Forever and ever. That ultimately, the reason we worship is God's glory. The reason we give as an act of worship is God's glory. I've mentioned this multiple times in the last few weeks, and it was just such a burden. When someone mentioned it to me in an offhand comment, it, it, it landed with such strength of conviction. Christ is worthy of praise. That is, I should talk about Christ, not because my neighbor needs to hear about the gospel alone. That's true. But if for no other reason than Jesus Christ is worth talking about. There is no other topic There is no other subject, there is no other thought in my head that is worth more than the glorious Savior. Therefore, for me to talk about other stuff is so much less of worth than for me just to talk about the Lord. And that is also true of giving. Think about all the stuff you could spend money on, all the stuff we just mentioned. What's worth more, that or Jesus? Okay, let me just say it again. Is your education worth more than Jesus? Is your grocery worth more than groceries worth more than Jesus? Is, is buying a new house worth more than Jesus? Is saving up for the big project you have coming, whether it's buying a car or, or getting a vacation or whatever, is that worth more than Jesus? Do you trust that if you should have those things, Jesus will provide, even if you give him a lot of the money you were saving for those things? So if Jesus is worth more, we show that when we give righteously and cheerfully and purposefully. We glorify God by giving. Okay, so let me just do a pastoral step back and then land the plane. This message is not because we are not meeting our budget and we're about ready to enter into our budget cycle, which we literally are getting ready to enter the budget cycle. Right, like next week we're presenting the budget. Has nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with us not meeting needs. The Lord has provided abundantly within our church family for the needs that we have. This text is is driven by the flow through Philippians and, and ultimately pastorally this thought. I think one of the ways in which our pastors and our churches are poisoning this country is bad work on money and giving. 
Okay, so, so generally speaking, when I think of pastors talking about money, I have this like, horrible thought that they're just asking for money because they want wealth. Right, so, so some of the prosperity people like Joyce Myers and who's the guy down in Texas? No, not, no, not him, but yeah, him too. But that's not the guy. Um, no, no, but he's $980 million, I think. Like he's almost a billionaire. Uh, I think it is Copeland. Joyce Meyer, I, this is, at last I looked, was like probably 2014 or something like that, had earned over $100 million that year. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, that's evil. That is just absolutely reprehensible. And, and God protect this church from ever teaching about money in order that the staff or the pastors here get your money from you. What a wicked way to shepherd the flock of God. That's absolutely reprehensible. So the, the danger is that because it's so badly done and so just icky, like, right, that's so horrible. Jesus Christ, he didn't even have a pillow to lay his head down. So gross. And that prosperity idea that you give money in order to get money, it appeals to the flesh, and there's pastors leading by their flesh. It's just absolutely gross. On the flip side then, it's terrifying to talk about money because that's what everyone hears. Right? It's like, hey, you should give generously to God. Oh, he's another one. <laughs> like, I thought Mark wasn't going to do that. And now he is just like squeezing us for money. So like the fear of being that guy, like everyone's dodging it. And so it's really hard to talk about money because you know what everyone's hearing is the money-making pastor guy talk. And then what happens is the church is crippled of one of its legs on which it stands in worship. Listen, worship is not merely singing. It's not merely listening to sermons. Worship is how you approach and declare your God is worthy of praise. What is the most dangerous love that you have? It's probably love for money. From it rises every kind of evil. Listen, you have to have money to survive in this country, right? It is, it is the, the, the tool by which we navigate this world. Money is not evil. It's the affection and loyalty to it that, is, that leads to all sorts of evil, right? So we discipline our souls in worship to delight in God, not in money. And if a pastor does not speak to money, he is robbing the church of worship through its money. So that's, that's my pastoral burden is that, like, we recognize that the pastors that are fleecing the flock have lost sight of this text, that this is sacrificed to God for God's glory as an act of worship. And I think if we don't talk about it, we likewise have misunderstood the text because what we're doing is failing to equip the church to adore and worship and trust God through giving well. So hopefully that makes sense to you all because that's what the text says. So I'm going to say it this way. Giving is necessary worship. If you are not giving, you probably don't trust God or you don't make any money. Right? Like if you don't give the Lord money, I suppose if you made zero, the percentages on zero are zero. Not going not gonna to challenge you on that one. If you make a dollar or you make a million and you're not giving the Lord money, you're not worshiping. Worship the Lord with your money. We, we give to the church, or may I say this text, we give to gospel ministries, right, to glorify God as we trust him to care for us because he's worthy of praise forever, right? Give to gospel ministries for the pleasure of God because he cares for us and he receives glory forever. That's the text from this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, it is often hard for us to trust in you rather than in money, but you are so faithful. You are alive you are present with us. You care so deeply for your children 
that we can agree with the psalm, that we do not see the righteous go hungry nor their children begging for bread. There is no good thing you withhold from those who walk righteously. So we trust you. But Lord, our hearts are weak. In the middle of of life's busyness and the uh, needs to provide for our families and the flow of money, it's often hard to remember to give sacrificially. Sometimes it's hard to know how to give. But Lord, we commit to being a people that trusts you. We commit to the discipline of, of setting aside what you give to us that we might give it back to you. Lord, we commit to believing that you are worth giving to. We commit to obeying you because you've commanded us to give. And Lord, we trust you that you'll provide every need according to the riches, according to those, or according to the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. We trust you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our church family, that there be much joy in giving. Lord, sanctify from our body the bad theology that would indicate that giving is somehow meant to prop up a pastor's wealth. Lord, guard our church from ever having a pastor that does so. Lord, forgive us for sometimes neglecting the uh, study of Scripture about giving because it makes us feel uncomfortable or we respond poorly by feeling like we are being used. If every good gift comes from you, then you have given us money as a good gift that we might give it back to you. And we trust you to keep on being good, to be faithful to your goodness. And you'll never withhold from us those things that are good. So Lord, if your good plan brings us poverty, if your good plan brings us wealth, if your good plan brings us sickness, if your good plan brings us despair and sorrow and suffering, we will trust you but we will not withhold those things you've given to us from giving them back to you. Lord, help us to always be generous with your people and with your church especially. In Jesus' name, amen.